So um, if you're new to us, my name is Leighton Erickson. I serve as the lead pastor here. And this morning, we're really privileged to have a guest speaker with us. His name is Matt Tykrob. And uh, so let me just tell you a bit about Matt. We are part of, of a greater church family called the Baptist General Conference of Canada. And inside that, there's a, the Baptist General Conference of Saskatchewan. We're a group of churches. And Matt is our new district minister. He was a, a longtime pastor in Birch Hills at a place called Lake Park Baptist. And now has just started working uh, with our denomination in this capacity in July, was it? In July. And so he has spoken here once before, but a wonderful speaker, a wonderful man, a good friend. I really appreciate him doing a great job with our conference. And so it's my joy to be able to welcome him. Uh, his wife, Teresa, was in first service, and she's not here right now. But uh, they are calling Ebenezer their home, and so you're going to see him around a lot more. And they, they serve on the welcome team, and they serve in some different areas. So let's welcome Matt to our, our, our pulpit today. And so let me pray for Matt. So, Father, again, we thank you for Matt. We thank you for his calling, for his ministry, for the gifts that you've given him. And I pray, just as you did in the first service, that you would anoint him right now, that you would use him to speak to us, and that you would open our ears to hear, not just to hear, but to receive and respond to your word today. I commend it to you in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. almost feel like saying, I guess I'm going to say it. You know, Lake Park has a lot of representation in this church. I'm not going to ask them to stand because they don't want to be embarrassed. But, you know, that's, that's the thing about being a part of a family of churches. You, um, you may begin in one, and then Lake Park, a lot of our young adults would come to the city and go to university, find different work, and they would check out our sister church, and they'd come here, and what a blessing it is. And you have a staff member who was on staff with me, Pastor Wes, and uh, he comes from Birch Hills, and, and he was our youth pastor when he first started ministry, and, and you may not know this, some of you, but his wife is our niece. So, isn't that awesome? Yeah, when you're part of the family, things happen. <laughs> So anyway, I would just like to, I, I know uh, Pastor Leighton already prayed, but I'd just like us to, like us to pray that uh, God would use, use this time. So Lord Jesus, as we open up the scriptures together, we are so grateful that it is you, Holy Spirit, that direct the word into the heart for where we need it. And so you know the people that are here in person or online, and I ask that you would minister to them exactly where it is you want to touch and maybe prompt, encourage, whatever it may be. And so we give you praise. Amen. Well, I want to thank the, uh, sir, uh, the pastoral team and, and Pastor Layton for being a part of this time. We're in this series called Behold Your King. And already we have looked at uh, different topics. Pastor West talked about the longed-for king, and Pastor Cal talked about the promised king. And so today we're looking at the humble king. And as we consider Jesus as our humble king, I want to um, show you or, and explain to you two different aspects to consider in ans by answering a couple of questions. And so the first question that I want to look at and that we're going to answer is, how humble is Jesus? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but how, how humble is he? And then, and then the second part is, why is it important for us to know that Jesus became our humble king? 
So to understand how humble Jesus is, we're going to start by looking at a passage out of Isaiah. It's kind of a familiar passage to most of you, I'm sure. But it, it helps us understand, get a starting point. And this, this starting point is actually before his birth. Now, you have to be very careful when you talk like that because I don't want that to be interpreted to say, oh, so what you're saying is Jesus wasn't really around at all until he was born. That is false. Jesus has always been. He always will be. And so we'll touch on that in just a little bit as well. But if you look at this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, you're going to see this, this vision that Isaiah had. And I, I've often thought about, if only I could see what this really looks like. If only I could have that right in front of me and understand what does this throne room of God really look like. And so you, as you think about this and as I'm reading, maybe visualize this a little bit and just think about, maybe even want to close your eyes and consider, wow, this is the throne room of God our Father. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response was, whoa. He said more than that. But you think about this. You're in the throne room of God. And you're, just, you're seeing and you're hearing. So Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. Here's a good message to be preached someday. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen who? the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that, that's great. That, that's a vision of God the Father on his throne. That's not necessarily God the Son. Well, don't you think Jesus was with God the Father? Jesus has always been and always will be. Three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. One point it says, who is, who was, and who is to come. He didn't just happen at Christmas. He always has been. He was right there with God the Father, sitting on the throne and then the seraphim worshiping him and calling out to him for who he really is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the King. The King. So a number of times in the New Testament you read that that's where Jesus is right now. Hebrews 1 verse 3, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's right back to where he was before his birth. Jesus, as king, is at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
That is Jesus, the sovereign king of kings. And then you arrive at Philippians chapter 2, where you find Paul's version of three incredible stories, very brief. The Christmas story, the Easter story, and the final story. Look at these verses, Ephesians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, here comes the Christmas part. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now, here comes the Easter part. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Here comes the final story part. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I remember back at Briarcrest going into a class, a theology class, and the theology professor of this class, one day we were there, and he just started by saying, I just want to read for you a passage, and he read this passage, Philippians 2. And as he was reading it, I could tell, uh-oh, this is going somewhere, and, and he got a little worked up, and he got really passionate about this passage and started actually preaching on it, and he was thinking about and preaching about the humility of Christ coming in, in the form of human flesh, and as he was explaining this, all of a sudden he paused and he broke down and he wept. The class was absolutely quiet. All you heard was our dear professor weeping. Think about it. God the Father would send his son, God the Son, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, from the throne room of complete purity, all authority, all power, a royalty and a sovereignty that would cause every tongue to come speechless, where the only words that anyone could ever utter were, Jesus Christ is Lord, he's king. And it would buckle every knee to complete submission, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. That king, that king was sent to become human and live on a sin-barren earth and do life among sinful man. How humbling would that be? You and I think of being human as normal, but for Jesus, God in flesh, King of kings, that was a very humbling ask. Why did he do it? Why did he do this? Well, within the Christian faith, there is a doctrine known as the doctrine of identification. This is something that the world has picked up on. They use it, but not in the sense that we would use it in the spiritual sense. But for example, here's, here's how it's used in the world today. Uh, when there's a time of a political election, 
candidates will go to different places, and depending on what election you're talking about, whether it's within their riding or maybe it's for the prime minister role and they go across the country, they're going across, they're going into their riding for the purpose of trying to win the people's votes. And so how do they do this? Well, they get on a bus or whatever it is, they fly, whatever they do, and they, they get to that place, and maybe it rolls up to the factory. This bus rolls up to the factory where later on you'll see in the news that this candidate was in this factory wearing a factory coat, wearing a hard hat, maybe some protective eyewear, whatever they, they do in that factory, however they dress, and he says something like, my dad was a factory worker, I know what you're going through and what you need. See, that's like identification. The same candidate gets back on the bus and he goes out into the rural areas and he steps off the bus and the next thing you see on the news, he's in coveralls, boots and a John Deere hat. I'm partial. He's wearing this John Deere hat, he's got these big rubber boots on, he just looks so out of place. But anyway, this, this is him, he's, he's walking or she, and she, they're, they're there, they're in this rural country, and, and this person says, my spouse's uncle, well, let me put it this way, my uncle's great-grandfather was a farmer, so I know what you're going through. <laughs> That's identification stretched. Jesus did not settle for the illusion of identification. He didn't say something like, well, I created the first human being, so I know what they're going through, I know what they need. No, he became human. The Apostle Paul tells us in verses 7 and 8 of this passage in Philippians 2, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. God became human. He became a man. Jesus didn't suddenly appear one day as a man. It's not like people woke up one day, oh, new man in town, who is this? Paul says that Jesus was born. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds, Luke, 12, Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, that is King, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, not a full-grown man, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then you read further in the New Testament and you find this in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since we, God's children, are human beings made of flesh and blood, he became flesh and blood too by being born in human form. Born. So you know what this means. Jesus was born. He grew through the stages of life. He started as an infant. We heard of new babies coming into the, into the family of, of Ebenezer. Infant, toddler, junior high, senior high, young adult, adult, Jesus was it all. He went through every stage. He can identify with each and every individual. Paul's Christmas story is accurate. Jesus the king humbled himself, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Paul's main point was to emphasize this is how humble Jesus was. He would stoop to become human. After we allow ourselves to let the awe and the wonder of this reality sink in, 
we are in a position to answer the next question. Why is it important for us to know that Jesus became our humble king? In the sense that he humbled himself to become human. What difference does it make? You know, and I think that's kind of where our world would be at, right? They think about Christmas and they think about, actually I had a conversation with an individual, I won't say where or who, but had this conversation with, with a person at a business not long ago, and, and they were asking me, so are you ready for Christmas? And I said, yeah, pretty much, getting close. How about, how about you? Oh, well, it's just another day for me. It's just holiday. The, the point would be like, what difference does it make anyway? I just get a holiday. So there is a point. It does make a difference. It makes a big difference that Jesus humbled himself and became human. And I'm going to give you four reasons. Number one, since Jesus the King humbled himself to become human, he understands our need for grace and mercy. Hebrews 2, verses 16 to 18, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, so that... It'd be a good idea to circle that because it tells you, okay, what's the big deal? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now listen very carefully here. This is a great gift to you this Christmas if you haven't already received it. If Jesus would have, wouldn't have become human, he couldn't become what you and I need. That is a merciful and faithful high priest. If he wouldn't have become human, he wouldn't have had the, we wouldn't have the confidence that he knows what it is that we actually need when we are tempted. And what a person goes through, he wouldn't, we wouldn't have this confidence that he knows what I'm going through when I'm tempted, what I'm faced with. Now, I know that sounds good, kind of sounds spiritual, but, but look at this, these next two verses. The first is from Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because in that, in that sentence, there's a double negative. And when there's a double negative, it actually means the opposite of what it might sound like. So in this particular case, what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. Why? Well, look at the rest of the verse but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I want to ask a question, and I would like full participation on this by a show of hands. And if you're thinking, oh, great. People are going to see me put up my hand. It'll be fine. You're going to see in just a moment, okay, it, it's a no-brainer. How many here this morning have, ever, have never been tempted? Okay, let me ask it the other way. How many of you have been tempted? All right, I'm not alone. So was Jesus. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. More than that, he was tempted in every respect he can fully identify. He's not shocked at what kind of temptations you've experienced. There is no temptation that you can mention in a prayer to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, I'm sure you, you've, been, you've been tempted this way, and you share this temptation that you've been dealing with, where he's going to say, oh, never noticed that one coming. I never experienced, he experienced them all. And with that, he knows what you feel or what you experience when you are tempted by whatever kind of temptation you're going to experience. The only difference is he never sinned. That is, he never gave in to the temptation, but he was tempted in every respect. Now, I want to take this a step further, and we're going to go look at the next verse that comes after Hebrews 4, verse 15, and it says this, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not judgment. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let me ask you another question, and this one you can just answer in your mind. Who is it easier to talk to about temptations that you experience? Someone you know who has been tempted by the same temptation you have, or someone who has never been tempted by that temptation, who would you go to? You'd go to the person who's been tempted the same as you, right? You'd have a confidence that, well, I know they have been tempted this way, so I know that I can express myself to them, and they'll understand. Uh, when you are tempted, you can come to Jesus with confidence and receive mercy and find grace because he was human and tempted in the same way that you have been or will be. And the reason it is called a throne of grace is because the one sitting on the throne has been human. Doesn't that add more understanding to what Paul said in Philippians 2? Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. So since Jesus the King humbled himself to become human, he understands our need for grace and mercy. Second, he understands relationships. We know that Jesus experienced what it is like to have friends. We know that he experienced adversaries. We also know that he was a part of a family, a biological family. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, I'll give you an example of how it's explained that Jesus actually was a part of a biological family. It says there, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So right there you have Jesus being, it's explaining Jesus has four brothers, and here's the names of the brothers, and then he also has at least two. It doesn't, we don't know for sure, but we know it says plural in that verse. He had, aren't his sisters here with us? So he at least he had two sisters, maybe more, and he knows what it's like to be a brother and have siblings. He knows what it's like when a brother or a sister teases you. He knows what it's like when your brother or a sister hides your stuff. He knows what it's like when they try to pick a fight. He knows what it's like when they try to duct tape you, duct tape you to a pole. 
He knows what it's like when they get you in a headlock and they do this. He knows what it's like, and so do I. I wonder how many times Jesus' brothers and sisters tried to pin Jesus for their disobedience. Saying something like, it's Jesus' fault, Mom. He did it. (laughs) And then um, Mom says, you might want to give that a second try. (laughs) Why can't you be more like Jesus? Mom, Jesus says he's perfect. (laughs) Sorry, he is. (laughs) He never lies. He's never disobedient. He never breaks curfew. It'd be pretty hard to be a sibling to God in flesh, right? Jesus understands relationships. Now think about this. If you are single, Jesus understands what it's like to be single. At the same time, though he's single, he also understands what it's like to be married. And you say, hmm, but he never got married. He has what is known as a wife called the Bride of Christ. And so he knows what it's like when a bride is unfaithful. Jesus knows what it's like to have children. John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we can take that a step further and that Jesus knows what it's like to have disobedient children or children that are drifting in their faith. Jesus knows what it's like to have close friends. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very close friends to Jesus. And hearing that, you may remember the story of how Lazarus Lazarus passed away and how Jesus saw the grief. And we were actually told that he himself wept He knows the grief of when someone close to you passes away. And I want to take that even a step further. I read earlier from Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? That's interesting because in Jewish writing, usually the son is tracked back to the father. You just look at the genealogies that that you find in the scriptures, or even the genealogy of Jesus himself, it's usually tracked back. This person goes back to this father. But here in Mark 6, Jesus is traced back to his mother. But in John chapter 6, verse 42, the question is this, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? So what's the big deal? Well, John's focus of his writing in his gospel, is primarily on the first couple years of Jesus' ministry. Whereas the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, their their focus is mainly on his third year. Some include his birth, but the ministry years are primarily the third year, which is why in in this passage of of, uh, Mark, you find that it's traced back to Mary, but here in John, it's traced back to Joseph, and here's the reason why. By the time Jesus is in his third year of ministry, 
his earthly father Joseph has passed away. And so the other writers of the Gospels are going to say, well, we can't say this is Joseph's son. They go back to this is Mary's son because Joseph is no longer there. But John says, this is the son of Joseph. I want you to understand something. Jesus knew what it was like to experience the passing of a parent. And not only that, he also understood that here he is in ministry. His, we don't know how Joseph passed away, whether he got sick and just finally it succumbed to his passing or whether he just suddenly died in an accident. We, we have no idea how he passed away. But Jesus is in ministry when this happens, when his father passes away. And in ministry, you will remember, he healed the sick. He even raised the dead. His father is sick. He's passing away. I wonder if he didn't pray to God the Father and say, would you please heal my dad? Would you give me the power to raise him from the dead? And God the Father would say, sorry, it's not the plan. Jesus experienced what many of us, all of us, I'm sure, have experienced in some way. All human life grieves at the passing of a loved one, which includes Jesus, the humble king. Because he was human, Jesus understands relationships. The third point that I don't want to spend a ton of time on, but here's another one. Jesus, our humble king, humbled himself to become human, so he understands work. It says in Mark 6, verse 3, is not this the carpenter? That was his employment prior to his three years of ministry. He was a laborer. He, he knew what it was like to get up and go to work, to meet deadlines, to deal with unhappy customers, to go to work to pay the bills and look after the family needs, to look after his siblings maybe when they were younger and so on. He, he knows what it was like to do business with people who cheat and people who don't pay their bills. He knows what it's like to pay taxes. Jesus, the humble king who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, humbled himself to do work the human way. At creation, his work was very different. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll recall how creation happened. And, and also in Colossians chapter 1, we also see there and read that Jesus was the one who was a part of creating. And so here we have this thought. Jesus, God, and his way of working, his way of creating was to speak things into existence. The only part of creation that Jesus, God, used his hands to create was mankind. He fashioned man from the dust of the earth and from the woman, or from the man, he took a rib and formed a woman. Isn't it interesting that the only way mankind can get their work accomplished is by the use of their hands? We can't just speak things into existence. I'm sure in this room this morning there are a lot of deep thinkers, people that you think up ideas. You're the person at your place of employment that says, okay, this would be the perfect thing that we need, and you've got it all down, and you do the drafting, you do the drawing, you write down the idea, and you pass it off to somebody who does what? Creates it with their hands. 
We can't just speak things or think things into existence. At some point, hands have to get involved. Something else about work, Jesus also understands that we need rest from work. I think some of us need to learn that. But he, our humble king, needed to rest. The fourth and last point that I want to share with you is this. Since Jesus is king, he humbled himself to become human. He understands pain. I'm going to point out three kinds of pain that Jesus experienced. We're going to go back to Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. And it says this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is a very clear it's very clear in that passage that the first kind of pain that Jesus understands because he humbled himself would be the physical pain. Without question, the scourging, the thorns, the nails would have been unbearably painful. What Jesus went through, if you and I were to have gone through it, we would have been dead before the cross. Jesus didn't go through that pain because he deserved it. He went through it because we needed it. Isaiah 53, verse 5, when I read this, and when I read this, you, you, you just can see the pain all over it. It says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Because Jesus humbled himself he, and to become human, he understands physical pain. Are you struggling with or going through any physical pain? Jesus understands. So you can talk to him about it. And then there's two other kinds of pain that Isaiah also refers to. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Because Jesus humbled himself to become human, he understands emotional pain. Isaiah says he was despised. That means instead of being made to feel like he was a person of worth, he was made to feel like he was worthless. Anyone here feel worthless? Maybe by a parent, a teacher, a friend, a coworker, where you are actually told you are going to amount to nothing. You're worthless. Because Jesus humbled himself, he understands. Isaiah also said Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That means Jesus experienced the emotion of deep anguish. You see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying before his arrest. You also see it when he's on the cross and he's praying to the Father and saying, why have you forsaken me? Deep anguish. Anyone here experience that kind of anguish when you are pleading with God to change dire circumstances or you feel like God has abandoned you? Some of us experienced the passing of a loved one this past year. And this will be your first Christmas. It'll be my first Christmas without my mom. Jesus humbled himself and he understands. 
There's one more kind of pain that Jesus understands, and that is the pain of rejection. Isaiah said Jesus was despised and rejected. The Jewish people loved Jesus as long as he did for them what they wanted. You know, you, you would hear things, and you, and you see it when you read the scriptures, where they would say something like, Jesus, please cast the demon out of my son. Would you please do this, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. You're a good man. Please heal me or my family member, Jesus. Thank you. You're a good man. My, my child has died, Jesus. Oh, you brought him back to life. Thank you, Jesus. Wow, you're a good man. But when Jesus didn't take the earthly throne of Rome and become the king that they wanted, we're no longer interested. Crucify him. Jesus was rejected for who he really was. Have you ever experienced rejection? Let's put it in the present. Are you feeling rejected? Do you have a friend who no longer wants to associate with you? Do you have an employer who no longer values you? Do you have a child who no longer wants to do anything with you or wants anything to do with you as a family? Do you have a spouse who says, I no longer love you? Because Jesus humbled himself, he understands rejection. But we need to look at this from another perspective. Are we rejecting Jesus? Are we in any area of our life asking Jesus for what we want? And if he's not going to do what we want, we say, you know what, Jesus, I don't know if I'm interested in you anymore. Or are you rejecting Jesus to be your savior? He hasn't ceased being king, you know. Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 11 that the day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. That does not mean every tongue that has accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the, those are the people that are going to do this. No, it doesn't mean only those who attend a church at some point in their life. Those are the ones. It says every tongue. Are you rejecting Jesus today? Are you convinced that you will do life your way, and if Jesus isn't going to do it, then pff, don't need him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as they're coming, I want to pray with you, and after I pray, um, there's, there's going to be a closing song that they're going to lead you with. But if you would like a pastor to, come, to pray with you, there's going to be pastors and staff up here who will pray with you. And I want you to come and I would like for you to meet with them and if you want to accept Jesus as your savior, the humble king, then they would pray with you. And if you have an area in your life where you just need, I need grace and mercy. I've been going through such terrible stuff in my life and I just need somebody to pray with me. I want you to know that these people that are gonna pray with you, they're not gonna judge you. I mean, they've needed grace and mercy in their life. I have. But they're willing to pray with you. Or if you have a relationship that's causing you pain or you have other kind of pain in your life, come to Jesus. So let's, let's pray together and, and then um, we'll have this time of prayer. Lord, you know each and every individual in this, this place this morning. You, you, Holy Spirit, have been speaking through your word and maybe you've touched a little part of, the, of a life. 
Lord, I pray that they'll have boldness to get up and pray, to be prayed for, that they will seek you for what they need in their life, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.